Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the power and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit you are able to make Jesus Christ seem as he really is to us tonight, a great Savior and a Lord worthy of the devotion of our hearts and our minds, our souls and all our strength. We remember how he came to those disciples on the Emmaus Road, and as he opened the Scriptures to them, their hearts were strangely warmed and began to burn within them. We pray as by his Spirit he opens his Word to us again tonight, that in a similar way our hearts may be on fire with the power and grace of your truth and with the glory of the saving mercy and the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us, be with us, and answer our prayers, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now we are coming this evening to one of the great transition points in Paul's letter to the Romans and to, as I said this morning, verses that some scholars believe to be the most important statement in Paul's letter to the Romans, in many ways encapsulates the gospel, and as I said, someone has said perhaps the most important paragraph ever written. And so we're going to read in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, passages on page 941 in the Pew Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible with you, it really would be helpful to you and to me if you had it open there at page 941. So, let us hear God's Word. But now, says Paul, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, or apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. I can't remember which of my elementary school teachers it was. It may have been each of them in quick succession, but as a little boy, it was, as it were, dinned into my mind by those teachers that one never, ever, ever begins a sentence with the word but. And perhaps uh, if you're of my generation, 
You remember those days, and there is an inbuilt instinct in you wherever you read a book and a sentence begins with, but you say to yourself, I'll let you off only this once, but not the next time. I really wish as an eight-year-old I'd known Paul's letter to the Romans, and particularly Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Uh, a difficult, if shy, little boy as I was, I think my hand would have gone up and said, but miss. I'm sure I would have said, but miss. What about Romans 3.21? Isn't that a glorious exception? Paul has been speaking about our sin and our guilt and our shame and our need. He has been focusing on that shame and guilt in order, as he says at the end of the previous section, to prove that all of us are guilty before God, and we have nothing to say by way of exculpation of ourselves. We have no grounds to plead. We have no excuse to make. And so he says, every mouth is shut, and the whole world is held guilty before God. The first part of the gospel is the bad news that argues us into silence, and we confess before God that we are guilty and condemned. Three Sunday nights ago, as I knew I was preaching the last of my sermons in this series that would lead us up to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, I went home thinking to myself, I wonder if we need to begin again at Romans 1.18. I wonder if it's really dawned upon us how sinful and guilty we really are by nature. And I suppose it was that subliminal thought that led to one of my many dramatic dreams. I dreamt in the middle of the night that I was in a courtroom And the judge in the court case was so great, so exalted, that he was hidden from me by a curtain. And as the dream began, or at least as I got into the dream, he was about to pronounce his sentence. Apparently, the evidence had been placed before him, and it was one of those courts where the judge himself makes the decision and pronounces the verdict, and I heard from behind this strong and thick curtain the word guilty as charged. And then the words, you are fined $100,000, and you will remain in prison until you can pay the debt. And I remember crying into the curtain in my dream, but I and I'm sure you would have done the same thing, most of you. I don't have a hundred thousand dollars. And then I heard the words, and this is just the beginning. And I cried out again, but if I am in prison and don't have a hundred thousand dollars, then how am I ever going to pay off the debt? And then marvelously I was delivered from the court scene by 
the terror I felt in the dream when I suddenly awakened up, and like John Bunyan, I would have been able to say, behold, it was a dream, and I was tremendously thankful that it was simply a nightmare. But you see, what Paul has been saying in Romans 1.18 following is that our nightmare has come true. We are guilty as charged, and we have no resources to be able to repay our debt. Our situation is hopeless and helpless, and the only thing we can do is to cry out for mercy. And it is this mercy that the Apostle Paul now introduces in chapter 3 and verse 21. We are under the judgment of God, he says. And then these glorious words, and for those of you who are uh, purists in language, the interesting thing is that literally what the Apostle Paul says is not but now, but now but. So, he escapes the condemnation of my English teachers, but he brings before us the, the most glorious news that any man or woman could ever hear. And in a way, if this doesn't strike us as glorious, then we need to go back to Romans 1.18 again. Actually, our greatest need in the world, if the gospel of grace is, seemed, is going to seem marvelous to us, it is for us to be brought to the point where our mouths are shut, and that's so contrary to our instincts. But when our mouths are shut, there is a great word in the gospel, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. God, verse 26, is just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And if this is the central message of the book of Romans and perhaps the most important paragraph ever written, it merits the fact that we will camp on verses 21 through 26 for this Lord's Day evening and for the next two Sunday evenings. Because here we've got the heart of the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, that salvation is in Christ alone, that salvation comes to us by faith alone because the righteousness of God has been manifested. And immediately we see what we've noticed once or twice in the course of these first three chapters of Romans, that Romans has a kind of symphonic character to it. Paul had said something very similar when he had announced the theme of his letter in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the saving power of God, because in it the righteousness of God has been revealed in order that it might be received by faith. And the whole point of chapter 1, 18 through chapter 3, 20, was to help us to understand why this manifestation of God's righteousness in the gospel is so absolutely necessary to us, because we have no righteousness of our own. 
only the righteousness of God can save us. Now, that's a very important expression in Paul's letter to the Romans. What does Paul mean when he speaks about the righteousness of God? He uses it on a number of occasions, and he speaks about God's righteousness frequently in his letters. What does he mean by the righteousness of God? Well, of course, when that expression is used of God, for example, in the Old Testament Scriptures, it describes this glorious attribute of God in which He is utterly true and utterly consistent with Himself and absolutely right and righteous and true in everything He does. And in His covenant mercy, He commits Himself to His people. And in His righteousness, He is faithful to every word that He has spoken to them. Sometimes that means, in the Old Testament Scriptures, the righteousness of God is expressed in His condemnation of sin. And oftentimes, because God has promised to be gracious through His covenant, in keeping that covenant, God's righteousness comes to expression in the salvation of His people. It means that God is always in the right. He's always true. He's always faithful to His Word, whether that be a word of condemnation or whether that be a word of salvation. And here the Apostle Paul is saying the glory of the gospel is that in it, in Jesus Christ, he means, God's saving righteousness has been revealed. The righteous God, in a right way, has righteously discovered a way of pardoning sinners, taking those who have been in the wrong, taking those who have been guilty before God as the judge of all the earth, and without diminishing His absolute righteousness, indeed in demonstrating His absolute righteousness, He has done this gloriously supernatural and marvelous thing in pursuit of His righteousness. He has found a way of counting righteous those who in and of themselves are both sinful and guilty. And of course, the way in which God does this, as Paul will explain and as we'll see as we camp on these few verses, is by the way in which His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, took our flesh, came among us, was baptized in the river Jordan, identifying Himself with sinners and in the place of sinners stood and then hung upon the cross of Calvary. And in our place condemned He stood in order that He might seal our pardon with His blood. 
When we understand that, when we understand, first of all, that by nature and choice we are guilty and condemned and without hope, but that God in His righteousness, in concert, the Father with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, has devised this glorious strategy by which sinful men and women and boys and girls might be counted righteous before Him because of that exchange of places that the Lord Jesus has made, in which God has counted Him to be sin, although He had no sin of His own. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God now counts those who belong to Jesus Christ as having this status before Him, this legal position before Him, this personal relationship before Him of being righteous in His sight. When Paul reflects on this, you remember in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he confesses that he pursued righteousness on his own, and he believed that he had it until he discovered that he had a sinful heart. And then he found that God had provided a righteousness for him in Jesus Christ, and that as he trusted in Jesus Christ, as he was joined to Jesus Christ by faith, the righteousness of Jesus Christ became his righteousness. And so he could stand before the throne of God, knowing that in and of himself he would cry out to God, O oh God, I can never pay the debt. But now in Jesus Christ he could stand before God with the same confidence that Jesus Christ himself can stand before God, because he could stand before God in the righteousness that was the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his Savior. And it's this that explodes now in Paul's teaching. When he says, but now, he's really thinking, as he goes on to indicate later on in the passage, he's thinking about the fact that however dimly this was displayed to believers in the days of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament Scriptures, now it is plain for all to see and for all to come without distinction, because God has provided a righteousness for all who believe in the person of His Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And about this, you'll notice he says four things in the first couple of verses of this section. First of all, he says, this righteousness is offered to us apart from the law, or apart from law. That is to say, if you desire this, if you desire this righteousness and this status before God and this glorious freedom of conscience and lifting of the burden of your guilt, he says, it can be yours quite apart from law. I suppose he means by that 
that it's offered to you quite apart from anything that you would try to do to earn it. Now, that's a very important thing to understand if you're not a Christian, because the basic instinct of the person who's not a Christian, although he believes that God loves him and God will save him, as an amazing number of non-Christians appear to do, at the end of the day, he thinks that God loves him and saves him because of who he is and what he has done. And it's very easy to discover that. You simply say, why will God accept you? And the answer is always going to be, because of who I have been and what I have done, and because I'm as good as most people and better than many, or because I haven't sinned too badly. But you see, that's the high road to condemnation, standing on my own merits, standing on my own righteousness. I haven't begun to understand the gospel, if that's what I think. No, I need to understand this if I'm not a Christian, that the gospel of God's grace, that Jesus Christ can be received only as a free gift. And Paul goes on later on in these verses to stress this. It comes as a gift of grace. It's not achieved by works. It's a gift of grace. But my dear friends, if you and I are Christian believers, we perhaps need to understand this at least as well and perhaps more because it's so easy for many of us to slip into this notion that God accepts us because of the kind of Christians we are, because of our prayer life, because of our position in the church, because of our giving, because of our growth in holiness. Now, however daring it may be to say this, that's a denial of the gospel. The moment I think as a Christian believer that God accepts me because of my level of sanctification, that's the moment I've begun to destroy the gospel. More and more we need as Christian believers to live in this great sense that salvation, pardon is ours without the law, without us earning it. And it's when that dawns upon us that the energy is produced within us to live a transformed life. So, it certainly means that the righteousness of God comes to us quite apart from our keeping of the law, but I think He probably also has in view that the righteousness of God comes to us quite apart from the law of the Old Testament, the Mosaic commandments and the Mosaic ordinances. It doesn't come to us because we've been circumcised. It doesn't come to us because we've been baptized or because we've taken the Lord's Supper. It doesn't come to us because we've engaged in the ceremonies or for a Jew because we are engaging in the sacrifices. We understand that none of those things can save us. Even an Old Testament believer would have understood in Isaac Watts' words, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain can give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain for the simple reason that the blood of an animal isn't a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of a man or a woman. 
It's only a sign. And he's saying, now the glory of the gospel, and this is one of the reasons it's for all, is that it comes to us apart from the law. Now, it's interesting. It was because he preached this that the Lord Jesus got into trouble. It was because he preached this that Stephen was executed. It was because he preached this that the apostle Paul was opposed. That the righteousness of God is given to you absolutely apart from the law. And one of the most dangerous things I can do, either in moving towards becoming a Christian or in living the Christian life, is to smuggle my works back down into the foundation of the way I think I'm going to be saved. Dear ones, I hope we're clear on this, that the righteousness of God comes quite apart from law. And yet you notice the next point that Paul makes. It comes apart from law, and yet he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God is mine apart from the law, and yet that way of God justifying me, God giving me Christ's righteousness is a way to which the Old Testament Scriptures bore witness. And it's interesting to see here, I don't know if anyone has ever set Romans to music. It would be quite a challenge, I would imagine. Highs and lows. But you see, he's picking up a motif that we saw right at the beginning of the book when he spoke about Jesus Christ as the Savior and how He was the Savior to whom the law and the prophets bore witness. And you see, if we had the mind, if we had the understanding, which tremendous challenge to do this, if we really knew Romans, then we would, we would hear the music of the opening verses in which he had described Christ as the fulfillment of the Scriptures being picked up again by him here as he speaks about the way in which God justifies us in Christ apart from the law of Moses, and yet in a way that is absolutely consistent with the Old Testament Scriptures. That the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus, neither of them was adequate in themselves to bring salvation. Now, that's a marvelous thing to see. It opens up the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures to us. Do you remember how this was, this was the first thing that Jesus did for two people on the road to Emmaus? On the day of His resurrection, He walked with them. They, they didn't recognize Him, and they were downcast. He said, What's, you seem very discouraged today. What's happening? And they said, where did you come from? Don't you know what's been happening in Jerusalem? How the one we hoped would be our Redeemer was crucified, and there are these things being said, women saying that they, they saw Him, and, and just the tomb was empty, and we just don't know what to think. And you remember what they did on the rest of the journey. He just, he said to them, 
Remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, my friends? How God promised that a Savior would come who would have his heel crushed in the process of winning victory and salvation? Don't you remember that passage in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant? Don't you remember the 22nd Psalm and how suffering was the preface to exalted glory? And you see, they began to understand, although they didn't make the connection with the person who was there until he broke bread at the table, and, and then they saw it. Their eyes were opened. It was too late. He'd gone. Happily, he'd gone back to Jerusalem. And when they ran back to Jerusalem, he'd met with the disciples. He was there. They met with him again. But you see what he'd taught them. He'd taught them that if you stop at the end of the Old Testament, you simply end in frustration, lostness, and despair. It's like seeing a signpost pointing you to something in a direction before you and stopping at the signpost. It's like so many of these modern novels that if you've, if you've loved the old novels that have redemption and reconciliation at the end, these modern novels that express the world in which we live that leave you feeling frustrated if not dirty at the end because there's no redemption in the end and you're hoping for redemption. And that's how it is if that's how it is if you if you simply look at the Old Testament as though it existed for itself instead of pointing forwards to Jesus Christ. Actually, that nightmare three Sunday nights ago was the preface to a very interesting and rather sad day. I had a long layover. I was going back to Scotland. I had a long layover in the airport, and I was sitting drinking green tea in Starbucks first time in my life I've ever drunk green tea in Starbucks, but it was such a long way over, I thought, I think I'll have green tea to pick up my spirits. And I was sitting in one of these seats in Starbucks, and there was a lady sitting there. She was frantically on the phone. And as I overheard snatches of the conversation, her, her story was deeply tragic. A few months ago, her husband, she was a, she, I would have guessed she was a number of years older than I am. A few months ago, her husband committed suicide. And her daughters wanted her to speak to a psychiatrist. And she was trying to find a, this was interesting, she was trying to find a psychiatrist who wouldn't sedate her. She tried several on her cell phone. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking, what do I do? What do I say? And when there was a lull in the, the frantic phone calling, I turned to her. I said, I, said, I, couldn't, I couldn't help overhearing some of the things you were saying. I'm, I'm so sorry. I said, I'm a Christian minister, and I'd like to send you a book. Now, some of you think I'm trying to sell books today. <laughs> but I sensed from the name the names of all the psychiatrists she was calling. 
there was a key to them. I thought she was probably a Jewish lady. And I have a little book. It's not a great book, (laughs) but it's not a bad book. And it's on the Psalms. And I know you're all dying to know the title. It's called Deserted by God. And I thought if only I could send this dear lady this book on the Psalms, this Jewish lady, I'd be a help to her. I was very conscious of That was a very sensitive situation. And she said to me very firmly, not ungraciously, but very, very firmly, no thank you, she said. I have already spoken to my rabbi. And you know, were it not for the firmness and the edge, I think I would have said to her, my dear lady, I know a rabbi. I know a rabbi. And she moved away. That's what Paul's saying here. If all you've got is the law, if you're trying to win your salvation, you see, you've gone to the wrong rabbi. But Jesus is the true rabbi who can not only bring pardon and forgiveness, but even into the deepest aches of the human heart can pour the oil of comfort and bring salvation, because He is the Savior promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. Oh, would to God, I thought, that her rabbi had said to her, my dear lady, turn over that blank page at the end of Malachi, because I have a book that's got a second part to it where everything is fulfilled. Because the righteousness of God that comes apart from the law is the righteousness to which the Old Testament Scriptures point. And because that's true, thirdly, says Paul, it's received by faith. Now, this is wonderful, really. Just pause and think about what Paul is saying. He says, the righteousness has been manifested apart from law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it, and the righteousness of God can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, that but now is not just the now of Paul's logical development of his argument in Romans, he's really speaking about the now time. He's speaking about the age in which Jesus Christ has been manifested. And he's going to elucidate this much more in the passages that follow. But for the moment, he wants to emphasize to us that if we desire to be rightly related to God, to know God, to, to know we can stand accepted before God, the only way to receive that righteousness is by faith, by trust in Jesus Christ, because it's only in Jesus Christ that that righteousness has been supplied for us. You know, one of the things that happens to a man or a woman or a young boy or girl when God begins to awaken them, in many, many instances, the first thing they do is to try better. 
to try harder. But you see, that's the way that will crush you. The way to go, says Paul, is to go to Jesus Christ, to, as it were, get into Jesus Christ. That's actually the preposition that the New Testament quite often uses. When it speaks about believing in Christ, the preposition conveys the idea of believing into Christ. Many of our hymns speak about this. We are hidden in Jesus Christ, and His righteousness becomes as really ours as though it were ours itself. What's faith? Faith's my empty hands reached out to take hold of Jesus Christ. And the way the way God brings us to faith very often is because we're a tight-fisted people by nature, aren't we? We'll do it ourselves. We'll grit our teeth. We're decent people, and we will try harder. And then, in God's grace, He begins to open our hands, and, and we see nothing in my hands I bring. I've nothing to offer but I can take hold of Jesus Christ, and faith is taking hold of Jesus Christ. Faith, the New Testament says, is seeing Jesus Christ, as John 3 says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so that all those who looked to the serpent in the wilderness were healed of their sicknesses. So, says John chapter 3, Jesus Christ will be lifted up on the cross to bear God's judgment against our sins, to bear the penalty in our place, and all those who look to Jesus Christ alone for salvation, they will see Him and trust Him and be healed. You see, it's as simple as that. Maybe a very complicated business to bring me there, or to put it more accurately, it may be a long, long business to uncomplicate me, to bring me there, until I say nothing, Lord Jesus, in my hand I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling, naked come to Thee for dress, helpless look to Thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And you notice, he not only says it's received by faith, but it's for all who have faith. Now, this is where Mrs. Woods would have been on the Apostle Paul's case. First of all, Paul, never begin a sentence with but. Please, miss, I wrote it in Greek. I didn't begin it with but. And then this, what are you saying? It's by faith for all who have faith. And the red pencil goes through the second statement, doesn't it? It's redundant. It's tautology, as the grammarians say. Don't say the, th the same thing twice. When the Apostle Paul says the same thing twice, he always says it for a reason. <coughs> Salvation is by faith, and it's for all who believe. You see the force of Paul's but now? 
There had been a time when God had looked upon this broken and fallen world and chosen one small people group and kept that people group as the people who, as it were, were the sacred guardians of the truth that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, was going to come. And now that He has come because righteousness is offered to us apart from the law, it's received by faith, then it's available for all who believe. Not just the Jew, but the Gentile. Not just the East, but the West. Not just the black, but the white. Not just the rich, but the poor not just the wise, but the simple, not just the old, but the young. Jesus Christ is offered to all and is for all. And that's why he emphasizes that this righteousness is available to all without distinction, without distinction. It doesn't matter who you are. You might be the richest person in the room this evening, or you might be the poorest. You might be the most intelligent person in the room this evening, or you might be the least intelligent person. You might be the oldest. You might be the youngest. You might be white. You might be black. You might be from one side of town or the other side of town, but there's only one aisle on which you can walk to the righteousness of God, and that's by faith in Jesus Christ. And we all need to walk that aisle, Paul is saying, because, notice his words, because all sin, all have sinned, and, notice the words that follow, have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, those of you who know the shorter catechism of our church, you know that sin is any, any, any lack of conformity or want of conformity to the law and the will of God, and that's certainly true. But, you know, I think Paul is saying something deeper here. He's saying the tragedy of our lives is not just that we've rebelled against God and broken His law. The tragedy of our lives is that we've lost our destiny. We were created to reflect the glory of God, to enjoy the glory of God, and one day to be in the glory of God. Isn't that what the catechism says in question one? That's a question at least we all know, isn't it? What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Isn't that amazing? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If you're not a Christian, you almost certainly think that those two things are absolutely contradictory. You either glorify God or you have a good time. But you can't do both. No, you can't do both if you're not a Christian. And that's why Paul says you need to come to Christ by faith, empty-handed. And then you will discover that He takes you by the hand and gives you the beginning of restoration to the glory of God, and surprise, surprise, 
you begin to enjoy Jesus Christ and the gospel and the Bible and the church and the hymns and the prayers and the people and living for Jesus Christ with all your energy becomes the great joy of your life. You see, that's our tragic situation if we're not Christians. We long for joy but there's nowhere we can find lasting joy apart from Jesus Christ, who is the joy of the world. Interesting, isn't it, that C.S. Lewis called his autobiography not surprised by grace, but what was even more surprising, he was surprised by joy. Well, as we close, as we must do this evening, how do you think about God? You see yourself under His judgment, but now through faith in Christ coming under His mercy. I wonder, I wonder if there's not only a but now in Romans chapter 3 verse 21, but a but now in your life. That would be the logical implication, wouldn't it? That if Jesus Christ has become your Savior, you'd be able to say, yes, lost, but now found. And because of Jesus Christ, think of it as righteous before a holy God as Jesus Christ is righteous because righteous with His righteousness. Oh my, oh my, isn't it? Have I said this before? Any of you remember me saying this before? Isn't it the most glorious thing in the world to be a Christian believer? But are you one? Make sure you come to Christ and take hold of Him. Heavenly Father, we're just beginning, and there's a whole world of Romans waiting for us. We're climbing Everest, but it's an Everest of grace and glory, a new world, new powers released into our lives. Oh, help us to begin the climb to keep going in the climb and to see the glory from the mountaintop rolling down the mountain and engulfing us even now because of Jesus Christ. Thank you for him. Thank you for giving us his righteousness. Thank you that we can come to you through him and call you our heavenly father. We pray this together in His great name.